This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim, and unfortunately, Tom wasn't able to join us today because of work. But I have with me Aaron Balik. Thank you so much for joining me, Aaron. Thank you. Um, you are a UK-based psychotherapist, and uh, I found you when I was entering the keywords psychoanalysis and film reviews, and your blog Minds Work came up. So, uh, and I saw that you work with the uh, BBC as well, describing like culture and media and relating that to psychology. Mm-hmm. So if you could just give our listeners a brief background of your history. Right. Um, well, you, you said it right in a sense that um, you found me through psychoanalysis and cinema and my, the brand of psychology that I, that I offer in my regular clinical life is, um, you know, very much informed by psychoanalysis rather than, um, you know, the other kind of psychology that most people are most familiar with, it's probably cognitive behavioral psychology. Hmm. So, you know, psychoanalysis is much more about, um, the meaning of things, um, rather than necessarily, uh, fixing a symptom. If you, if you get my drift. Yeah. So if we're talking about meanings, then obviously there's a big link into literature in film and television and culture. And, um, you know, you go back as far as Freud and he was very interested in using psychoanalysis to understand those things as well. Hmm. So that's kind of where I came from. You know, I, I, as an undergraduate, um, I was an English and a film major. So I got into psychoanalysis and psychotherapy later, um, and never lost my drive and my love for trying to understand human expression through its, uh, what you might call its cultural dreams, which are its books, television Hmm. shows and movies. Kind of when did your interest in film uh, start to be something more than just like mere entertainment? I think um, personally, it's always been the case. Um, Hmm. but, But I think something about the capacity for technology to enable me to do something like a blog, um, which is much easier than, uh, you know, getting myself a column in the Guardian or something like that, <laughs> um, you know, which I still wouldn't, I wouldn't turn down, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it just sort of turned into a hobby, you know, um, suddenly I could just watch something in my, my leisure time and uh, think about it and write about it with a kind of an ease. So um, I'm really grateful to what what technology has offered us, including what we're doing today, Mm. Um, just to be able to engage with the public without, um, without too many bars in the way. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So when you, you kind of applying psychoanalysis to a film and um, reading your reviews, uh, your film reviews on mindswork.co.uk, it kind of melds, some of my two key interests uh, with psychology and film, but how well do you feel that psychoanalysis fits as a framework to understand film and kind of what do you feel it brings to the table when you review a film? Really interesting question because my sense is that in the world of film criticism, um, psychoanalytic perspectives are kind of passe, you know, people are, and particularly, um, the old fashioned psychoanalysis, you know, if you, if you want to take a Lacanian route or a post-structuralist route, that's, that seems to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it just has the capacity to, um, I don't know, to deliver a human kind of meaning that other forms of criticism don't for me. So, you know, I, I think there's something in it about one's personality, what, what, what one is attracted to and not attracted to. Mm. But, you know, you go back to the basics and, you know, Freud made a distinction between manifest content and latent content of a dream. 
in that the manifest content was what you see and what you hear and what you do. And the latent content is the stuff that's underneath, you know, informing that show you put on for yourself. Hmm. And there's a very simple way of looking at something like um, a film. I, I think it does operate very nicely that you see this manifest content, the, the actions going on on the screen, um, including, you know, the sound and the lighting and the framing and, and all of those filmic qualities. Hmm. But, um, why is this particular film being produced at this particular time is the underlying question, hmm. you know, and, and I think psychoanalysis at least offers one perspective. I, I think there are other totally valid perspectives, but um, this is the one that I enjoy and the one that I have the most expertise in. I can definitely relate to being told that psychoanalysis was something of the past. Yeah. When I was studying film, it was something that was looked upon as a kind of a relic way of looking at film and also something that we were told were kind of a forced perspective. But I, I know I don't agree with that because there was basically something in Metropolis that speaks to a way of understanding it that kind of gels with psychoanalysis in particular for me. I'd, I'd be curious to hear hear that because um, coming from that kind of influence, you know, you found yourself nonetheless typing in psychoanalysis and film into, mm -hmm. into Google. So there must be some draw for you. Um, but I, I would also respond that there is some truth in the criticism about the forced nature, um, particularly in, in old style psychoanalysis. I mean, I, I would probably say I'm a, a contemporary psychoanalyst, which is quite different, you know, influenced by ideas in, in postmodernism in a kind of um, relativism where the, the need isn't so much to fit everything into a particularly rigid theory, hmm. uh, which classical psychoanalysis, you know, it did do. It did it clinically and it did, did it culturally. So yeah. it's a much more fluid process these days. This is your first time uh, watching Metropolis, which I was a bit surprised by. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but are you familiar with uh, other films by Fritz Lang? Uh, I'm actually not much of a, um, a silent era buff, so hmm. I would have to claim my ignorance publicly okay. here and say, no, no, not really. But what were your first impressions watching this kind of classic sci-fi film? I, um, I think my first and lasting impressions are mostly aesthetic ones, actually. Hmm. Um, from the very opening, the way this film looks uh, and continues to look, is it's, it's a beautiful film. Um, particularly uh, the design, but also the... Um, it's just a, it's a very sophisticated image. Um, throughout. So I, I really, you know, I, I really enjoyed just receiving the images as it, as it progressed mm. narratively. Um, you know, I wasn't totally impressed by it, by its, <laughs> its, its narrative structure, but, uh, aesthetically, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Mm. I've seen it probably three or four times. Last time was just a couple of weeks ago, actually, when it played at a local theater here in Orus. And they showed a restored edition with a new soundtrack where they included like electronic music from uh, 2013 to 2015, I think it was, with mm -hmm. artists like Massive Attack and Brian Eno, Portishead, New Order. And it was the first time I'd seen it in the theaters. And it was just something really special to experience because it was like on my birthday and I went with a friend of mine who I don't think she'd seen a silent film before in her life, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but those two and a half hours that the film lasts, it went by so fast. Um, and I was simply like struck with the beauty that 
Lang has put in just every frame. And it was just a fantastic experience watching something you are kind of familiar with, but you feel like you're discovering it all over again. And with some of my like favorite musical artists providing the soundtrack, it made for a really like, great evening. But the thing that I was struck with uh, the last time I saw it, and you being a psychoanalyst, I won't beat around the Freudian bush here. Uh, <laughs> the, the one thing I was struck with was that the edible themes that could be read into this. And it's not like a real clear picture in my mind, but I feel like there's a triadic relationship between Joe Fredersen and Freda, his son, and mm-hmm. also Maria slash Hell, where Hell, she was originally intended to look like uh, Joe's wife, Freda's yeah. mother. And you also have the scene where Freda, he walks in on Joe and Hell, thinking that his father is embracing Maria. And there's a sense that Freda, he's in line to succeed Joe, but he effectively breaks his ties with his father, wanting to find his mother or Maria, mm-hmm. uh, who sort of represents his father's doom. Um, it doesn't always like fit, because I don't feel like Freda, he actively seeks out to destroy his own father. And in the end, he serves as uh, a mediator between his father and the workers. But... I couldn't help like pick up on some of that conflict and Joe, his father is definitely like a castrated version of himself in the end Mm. where he almost has no power. But did you like pick up on any of those themes? Yeah. I mean, interestingly, um, my, my impression uh, of what you were describing was initially kind of Jungian, which um, mm. I, I borrow from sometimes, but it's not my main point of, of interest, but actually these kind of, um, archetypal notions of what what woman and what man is and and what really struck me <clears throat> excuse me um is that there's really only one woman in the entire film and all the rest are men you know mm-hmm. besides these sorts of um you know you see some of the mothers of the, of the workers interspersed with the crowds but even so it's you know largely largely men so i saw a real kind of um split between masculine attributes and feminine attributes and and I'd agree with what you said that that um Freider kind of seems to inhabit the middle zone which seems to be the intention of the film hmm. um but Oedipal wise um the the benefit that we get from contemporary models of psychoanalysis is uh the lack of the need for it to be a particular kind of a triangle mm-hmm. you know the the paternal the maternal the 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 desire for um, union with the mother and, and murder of the father. That's now seen as um, a much broader model of any kind of triangular relationship um, and the tensions that exist within any kind of triangular relationship. Hmm. And in this film, we see so many of them. You know, you even see the triangular relationship between um, Freder, the real Maria, and the, the robot Maria, hmm. um, the relationship between the mad scientist, the father, and Maria between the mad scientist Freder and the father. Um, I mean, you could, you could go on and you can see them kind of switch and pivot in relation to each other um, mm. in very interesting ways, causing a whole variety of different tensions that um, ultimately inform about the nature of, of relationships in general with the background of these archetypal pulls towards, you know, general ideas of, um, you know, masculinity and, and femininity. 
Hmm. And it was 1927 too. So, you know, this is, um, this is concurrent with Freud. So, you know, he's, he's still alive. He's still got, uh, another what, 11 years to go, uh, 12 years to go. Hmm. Um, so I'm sure, uh, it's, it's very, you know, he, in fact, he hadn't even left, uh, Vienna at this stage, um, obviously. So, uh, in the Germanic world, I would imagine that these kinds of ideas are, are pretty heavily, uh, spoken about. Mm-hmm. And so, so like a sense of, uh, in lack of a better word, like twinning where you're relating, uh, one character with their opposite end, uh, kind of like the good versus evil Maria, and Freda versus his like the worker eleven eight one one, and of course the key twin relationship, which is Joe Fredersen and Rotwang, the the inventor, mm-hmm. which kind of speaks to how you can switch all these characters in a, like a triangle and still make it fit somehow. Absolutely, and, and and by um maintaining the triangles, you have the opportunity uh for splitting and projection. So you know, Rotwan, for example, gets um you know gets a lot of the bad attributes. So you, the the good people get to stay good, and the bad people <laughs> get to stay bad. Yeah. And in fact, there was another psychoanalyst that you might be less familiar with, but was actually based in Berlin, um, Melanie Klein. Um, who developed lots of Freudian ideas, and she developed a very interesting idea. And I, I talk about this in my blog post about um, we need to talk about Kevin, hmm. where uh, you have these two developmental positions. Um, one of them is called the paranoid schizoid position, and the other is called the depressive position. And basically, the paranoid schizoid position is a it's a psychological state in which you see the world as as basically split, either all bad or all good, and you see other people as all good or all bad. Hmm. The depressive position is, um, it's the more developed position, which is why, uh, lots of people think Klein herself is kind of depressing when you're kind of aiming towards moving towards a depressive position. <laughs> That's your like top, <laughs> top developmental state. <clears throat> but the reason why it's depressive is because that's when you're able to, um, to hold bad and good in one person. Mm-hmm. So it's depressive because you lose the ideal. Yeah. Mm. You don't just lose the the bad you lose the the ideal person too and you can see this film as a as a movement towards the depressive position in which the hand and the head you know um are united by the heart um which is which is a step up from all of these split relationships you know mm-hmm. ideally it becomes a, a much more complex and developed relationship mm-hmm. and another like depressing point is that I've read reviews that citing this as sort of a leftist or Marxist piece and others who have highlighted um, more troublesome politics in the film. And I feel like some seems to stop analysing the film after you get the word revolution. Mm-hmm. But when you really look at it, the workers, they're all kind of portrayed as simpletons and you have mm-hmm. the feeling that they are the ones who really need to learn how to come to a peaceful agreement with Fredersen. And his own paranoia is kind of indicated uh, by Rotwang's plot to kill both him and his son. So you can, there's a sense that the work is, they are getting the short end of the stick here. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that that's why I wasn't crazy about its narrative structure, because it seemed kind of, um, it's <clears throat> both simplistic and a little bit, um, I don't know, a little bit dim, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it just didn't... Um, 
you know, you, you don't, you don't kind of buy it. And, and I, I read some, some stuff too, that seemed to indicate that Lang wasn't so crazy about it either after, mm -hmm. after it went out there. And apparently, you know, the Nazis favored it in it. some way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, his wife was actually a part of the Nazi party. Um, I understand. Yeah. yeah. I think he divorced her within a year um, mm -hmm. that she joined it. Yeah. Um, but this is why I think, um, the, the psychoanalytic point of view is, is so important um, because you, you you look at the latent content and not just the manifest content. So manifestly, mm -hmm. there's some kind of um, simplistic political ideology that's not fully thought through. Hmm. Um, but underneath, w w what is this an expression of? You know, we we see a relationship between man and and in this film, really, man and technology rather than humankind and technology. Um, you see a relationship between uh, the genders, um, between classes, between other archetypal concepts like heart, labor, and intellect. And, you know, you fast forward to today and you look at something like um, The Hunger Games and you see a very similar kind of a thing that hmm. could be read as a, a simplistic revolutionary political ideology, um, but is probably an expression of something much deeper. So, you know, you can go into sorts of comparisons of, of the Weimar Republic in, in, in the late 1920s and, um, you know, Western society in the early 2000s, hmm. what's being expressed in the, in these cultural dreams. And I think that, that, that becomes much more interesting than a, a kind of simplistic and kind of backwards Marxist plot, you know, mm -hmm. like we stated in the opening, the, uh, the main thing that we came away with was like the visuals of the film. Mm -hmm. And it's probably, I don't think it's the first major work of its kind, but it's definitely one of the most lasting works within science fiction and silent cinema, where you have this like semi-Gothic dystopia. And he, he proved that science fiction can handle themes such as social equality, even though it's on like a, a superfluous level almost uh, but it's that social equality in an industrial landscape which is very relevant in today's society as well absolutely and many of my like favorite movies like brazil and blade runner and gattaca all have been inspired by this film and it's distinct like visual art deco utopian style and that beautiful vital visually striking city that we've seen so many times with you know, throughout film history but that juxtaposition also with that stark underground city with its downtrodden workers i love how he attempts to mirror our own challenges in society yeah i think i mean there's something um very human about it which i think which i really enjoy when i'm watching particularly older films um mm. where you can see it and and you know i i think particularly of, of sort of noir films but certainly going back as far as this what you find familiar and what you find familiar dressed in uh a, a different culture's clothes in that sense you know 100 years ago or whatever mm. um you mentioned earlier watching this film to contemporary music which i think is a really interesting phenomenon because you're kind of reappropriating something for a particular time, mm -hmm. um, which gives a, a um, another aesthetic uh, experience. And I had a very similar one uh, with the Battleship Potemkin, which I watched um, 
screened live in Trafalgar Square and the, the Pet Shop Boys were there doing a live um, musical accompaniment that, that oh. they had designed. Yeah. And uh, that is a silent film I'd seen several times previously. And um, watching that reinterpretation, it kind of forces you to ask different kinds of questions than when you're watching it in its own sensibility. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when they, um, you know, when you might watch a reinterpretation of Shakespeare or Tartuffe, but it's set in the 1940s or the, or the 1990s. Hmm. Um, and my, my uh, point of reference was uh, actually things like Apple products. Okay. Yeah. How you have these beautifully designed products that um, people are attracted to and in a sense run towards, yet at the same time, they kind of dominate their lives. Mm-hmm. So that, that wonderful scene sort of when um, when the sun goes down down into the caverns and uh, sees the, the machinery start to go crazy. And uh, he, he has this image of uh, Malach sort of eating the, the workers who are jumping into its mouth. Um, to support a system of technology that people are, are, are both attracted to and yet um, feed themselves to in a way that's really disturbing, mm. I think uh, resonates very closely to what's going on today. Oh, definitely. I feel like uh, in my own personal life, I there's come, it's come to a point where I need to show restraint in my phone use mm-hmm. uh, just to, so I can be more present and not be as distracted as I if I just let myself go and divulge every impulse to pick up the phone or check something, uh, especially in like social settings, I've come to a point where I hardly look at my phone anymore unless it's ringing. Uh, and also, especially when I'm viewing films, uh, I need to put it away. And we've talked about this on several episodes where just separating yourself from the phone uh, and creating yes. a distance, uh, it's so important to engaging with the film so that your attention is not, like, split. Absolutely. I, I actually wrote a blog, blog post about why everyone under 30 should uh, watch The Godfather with their phone locked away in a drawer <laughs> somewhere because uh, um, it's so important, it, it, particularly to watch um, a long film you know, that was designed mm-hmm. to be that way, you know, to, to, to be engaged straight on without interruption, to be mm-hmm. completely absorbed without checking out all the time. And, and, and one wonders whether people get that experience these days of committing oneself to, to an idea. And particularly when you're thinking about silent films, you know, <clears throat> the ways in which our, our modes of attention have changed. Mm-hmm. And the, there's now, you know, you sit down to Metropolis and you've got over two hours of images and music and, and no dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's it becomes more and more of a challenge. Definitely. I think there's kind of two ways about this, because at, at, in the one hand, you have people are becoming less capable of, of focusing in on one particular thing. But your diverted attention is becoming greater. Basically, you are able to like channel your attention to several different arenas mm-hmm. and it relates to like workers who are working at a subway station or something where they need to have their attention diverted on several different cameras or traffic uh, traffic mm-hmm. surveillance or something people before technology really came about with smartphones and with internet at home and stuff like that they really don't have the same capabilities as the, the younger generation. You mean with the, the capacity to to multitask? Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of arguments that say that that isn't, um, that, that actually isn't what's happening and that, that, mm. yeah, that the multitasking is, is taking away from, um, you know, you're just not, you're just not doing anything properly. Okay. <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're doing one task and your, your brain is catching up as you move back to the, back to the previous one. Mm. And actually to get back to the film, you know, um, it's, it's a really interesting thought because no, nobody in the film either is particularly present. They're just unpresent in, in completely different ways. In fact, the only one who you, you might think is present is, is the, the scientist. Mm. Um, I, I love, there's a scene in the beginning, which I, I really love, which shows um, everybody marching to work and marching home from work. Mm-hmm. And the guys that are marching to work are, are moving about twice as fast as the ones marching <laughs> home. <laughs> so they're like, you know, they've got their energy and they're going into the lifts and these exhausted men are coming back after after a shift of working all day. Mm-hmm. So they're all like um, fully engaged in their manual labor. And then upstairs, everybody is fully engaged in their... Um, kind of frivolous enjoyment of the ease that the people downstairs are giving them. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like there's no reflection. I mean, it's very similar to the the world in Brave New World, isn't it? Where where y- you're either engaged in some frivolous activity, um, some kind of professional activity or manual activity. And when you're not doing that, you're, you're taking a Soma holiday. Mm. Um, so it really mitigates against reflection, which is why you see this division in, in shallowness, in a sense, on both on both sides. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we definitely have evidence of that going on in our culture now. Hmm. And, and Freda, he, he really seems to lack complete reflection. Everything is like surface level to him. He comes across as quite naive for me, where he has this almost uh, inflated sense of self where he really believes that he can change everything he he goes to the underground just in search of information and when he sees maria and how how she's talking to the workers he immediately thinks that he's gonna save the world basically yeah that's even optimistic i mean you know basically he's in it for a bit of skirt <laughs> you know this beautiful woman comes up uh, with all these children in this political mission to show them what's going on and what the world is made of hmm. <clears throat> he falls for her and he he looks for her um entirely throughout in the most basic of libidinal ways mm-hmm. you know almost like um you you become a lefty to get the girl uh, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah um and even in the end um where you think he's already got it in his mind that he must be the mediator. Hmm. Um, he's standing there kind of gormlessly while his, his father and the, the foreman are not quite able to shake hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he needs her to whisper in his ear. <laughs> you know, <and> say, <laughs> you know, why don't you go over there and, uh, and help them out? <laughs> so he's really, he's really kind of a, a, a brainless twit, um, hmm. which is disappointing as he's supposed to represent heart. I mean, obviously he's a surrogate for her and mm-hmm. um in those Jungian terms he's a surrogate for the the lack of um anima or or female spirit that's in the society as as a whole mm. yeah know, the women are just these kinds of objects of desire mm-hmm. um until they're really incorporated until the, that that you know and i use feminine spirit in, in advised terms but <laughs> the way in which that feminine spirit ultimately comes to even out the society mm. Yeah, because she 
is basically the one who is meant to save the city, but due to like sexist roles and how the the society is structured and just the theme of the movie and the the context of the movie. I feel like Hunger Games, you are um the female roles in that film are basically something to aspire to. Mm. Uh, but not the case so in Metropolis. For no, me. you still need a you still need a, a an aristocrat in a sense to yeah. to be the face of it, don't you? Aristocrat and a man. So yeah, <laughs> yes. There is like a tendency to get sort of lost in the details. I feel like in this film, the rebellion they seemingly forget their children, or yeah. Fredersen he doesn't fear that the workers will destroy the machines that are keeping them alive upstairs. And I find it that if I try really hard to understand the plot, I kind of lose the overall understanding of the film. And I have a much better experience if I kind of engage with it on a more visual, thematic, observing level than if I go for the plot and the logic of it. This relates to the quality that it has of being sort of like a dream. Mm -hmm. It's like... The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, where you feel like you're watching the dream of someone, a troubled mind, basically. Mm -hmm. He's always on the verge of becoming a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And especially with all these surreal and iconic images of the workers and the machines and the electric rings around the futuristic robot. But also that... There's also this frantic, frenetic feeling at the end of the film, like you're just about to wake up, that I kind of relate with. Yeah, and I think, in a sense, there's there's kind of nothing nothing crazy. You know, th- th- there doesn't need to be any pathology in the mind to create a dream like that. We all we all mm. have these dreams that that wake us up and seem absolutely terrifying, and and we wonder what it is that that it represents. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd, I'd like to think about that in relation to this film, but I want to I want to fast forward again to another one um, th- that I thought of when you were just speaking, which was which is Gravity, mm. um, which I was really much more impressed with than I than I expected to be, um, but also saw it as a dreamlike parable of um, Professor Stone's loss of her her child, mm-hmm. and in that film also people got really hung up on the details and the possibilities, uh, you know, the realistic possibilities of her her journey back to Earth. Mm. Um, but when you see it as as a dream of incorporating and making sense of loss, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you can also see that in Woody Allen's Match Point, which um, a lot of people hated. But if you see it as constructed like an opera, which and it's completely filled with opera music, you see mm-hmm. it as, as a different kind of expression. It's not about how realistic it is. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, in this film, you know. Obviously, one of the first stabs at, at, at sci-fi. Very similarly, we get lost in this kind of narrative. But um, you know, what's this? What's this dream about? You know, hmm. um, it's set after the First World War. Um, you know, German director Weimar Republic. Five years from the uh, coming in of the the Nazis um, during the growth of of psychoanalysis. Um, uh, oh God, I can't. Oh, short, have you have you ever seen art by? Um, George Grosz, G-R-O-S-Z. No, I haven't. It's um, these beautiful ink, ink and paint drawings of um, Berlin around that time. Mm-hmm. And what's shocking about them is everybody in them is either drunk or um, they're missing limbs because <laughs> they're all sort of like a post-World War I population of Berlin. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. so you have women, and all the men are either have like uh, you know red veins in their noses, and their faces are grotesque, or the, or they're walking around with these you know on crutches or missing arms, and it's they're really compelling, you know, paintings. But you think that's the um, that's the soup that this film came out of, mm-hmm. yeah, pure destruction, surely a desire for. Um, some kind of utopia when the film opened i thought this is like you know was this film designed by albert speer or or, you know (laughs) he watched it because it looks like the berlin that was supposed to be you know Mm. by the thousand year reich yeah so it really does seem to me and you know i'm no expert in in uh you know weimar republic but but that there's a serious uh weimar dream happening in this Mm. film and also, you know, you think about World War One and the lack of uh, the feminine again and what happens in that case, mm. you know, the sheer destruction. And I think you're absolutely right. There's much more to be understood on that register than mm. there is on a, a, a kind of political um, ideology. Yeah. It also kind of helps me get in tune to both the the shorthand storytelling where you have entire sequences that are compressed down to like a key point which really they could be expanded themselves into really complex stories Mm -hmm. but also it helps me get into the style of acting and how extremely externalizing they are of their emotions Mm -hmm. sometimes they're close to pantomime yeah um and all of these maybe perhaps dated perhaps more fantastical elements. They never pull me out of the movie because of how Lang, I feel he has constructed the film. But how do you, the like extreme emotions that are displayed and mm-hmm. the expressionistic qualities of the film, how did you find those? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I don't, I don't know whether this is an accident or not, but um, I just found her absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of the men uh, like pantomime. Mm-hmm. So, um, you think about, uh, you know, the, the, um, the crazy tricks that modern filmmakers try to do when they've got doppelgangers, you know, somebody's always bumped in the face. So they have a, you know, they have a plaster on their forehead or they've had a haircut like in sliding doors. So you can tell the difference between, <laughs> you know, A and B character. Um, and they didn't need that with Maria at all. Mm. She completely, you know, you, you could tell by the look in her face, whether she was, you know, the good one or the bad one. Yeah. And you look at this um, reliance on facial expression uh, to communicate emotion when you've only got, um, you know, words and music to do otherwise. It, I, I think it's, I think when done well, it's pretty incredible. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and all, I think I was, uh, I was pretty impressed with it. And, you know, my other work outside of film ha- has a lot to do with technology and, and social media and a concern that, across social media that that's exactly what you don't get most of the time. Mm-hmm. You don't get the impact of somebody else's eye contact in their body language in the, the force of their presence. Uh, and yet in this silent film, you know, based on cell- celluloid and, and shot with a, with a bright light bulb, uh, you're actually impacted quite deeply, at least by, by her externalizations, if not so much by, uh, by the men. Yeah. Another thing that, is very potent in the film is the role of religion. Mm. You have, of course, the the Tower of uh, Babel um, with this insane and ultimately doomed plan to build like this sky high tower. 
you also have the depiction of Maria as almost an angel. Yeah. Um, you have the privileged son who's uh, something akin to a messiah or the mediator. And Lang, he himself was a Catholic, and you can feel that there is a strong religious overtone laid throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, for me, it didn't it didn't quite fit. Mm-hmm. Um, it it felt like an overlay. I think that's the word you just used. Actually, it felt like an overlay, and and oftentimes you can see it much less explicitly. Um, you know, in Blade Runner, for example, where it doesn't feel like an overlay, but you feel it, you know, right at the center of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when they go down into the catacombs and we see her speaking for the first time, and they have these crosses in the background, I was kind of taken aback because in my mind the film was sort of post-religion until that point. Like I thought, oh, are those crosses? And then I felt kind of disappointed that, that like you know, in in Brave New World, you have um, before Ford and after Ford. You know, yeah. it's like a uh, the 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 mechanics and the technology function right into the the religious structure. Hmm. Um, whereas here, you know, and then although it was a beautiful scene again with the seven deadly sins sort of coming out of the wall like that in death, sort of you know, really scary image of death marching forward um it didn't seem an integrated uh part of the narrative to me and and also you know the tower of babel i couldn't i couldn't make sense of its presence um it's sort of old testament in any case and Mm -hmm. again i think that's where i got this um this sort of confused reaction it just didn't it 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 didn't meld for me Mm -hmm. no i can see that and there's also a sense that I don't know this this like future utopia moving beyond religion in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you would expect in a sense, wouldn't you? Yeah, and where you have the workers kind of they are portrayed as simpletons, yet that is where religion is strongest in a way. Yeah, and I mean, I, I suppose again, if we if we get out of the um, we get out of the manifest content and move back into the latent content, we wonder what is moving them and i would yeah. say you you take out political ideology and you take out religion as expressed on the surface and i think it's a, it's a search for meaning isn't it mm-hmm. that suddenly there's this um woman who says uh you can be more than an appendage to a machine hmm. um and that's where that's where your desire is mm-hmm. and and what happens is desire then gets activated um through a series of um, replacements, you know, religion, political ideology, that sort of thing, hmm. um, to to reform society in the in the image of a, a human being, rather than uh, in this kind of technologically deterministic trajectory that that seems to have been up until this point. Hmm. And again, I think you could probably see that as a as a post war situation also in relation to you know what have you done with the children you know you send all these men off to war <laughs> for a particular kind of ideology and, mm-hmm. and what have you left behind you know the, mm. the the women and the children yeah the sense of like the the priorities of society seems to be malplaced in yes ways. yeah yeah and still you know kind of the workers fault in, in a sense you know <laughs> if, if you really look closely at it you know the the, the workers are getting all jazzed up you know they're they're still selfish enough to leave their children behind and you know it's it's not particularly uh, kind to the um proletariat i don't think no i've read some stories about lang uh, behind the scenes where 
he has like almost a brutal nature um, that draws comparisons with Joe Fredersen, the domineering controller of the city where Lang, he commanded, I think it was close to 25,000 actors and extras and almost 5,000 crew members uh, to wow. complete this vision. Uh, and he didn't always do it in a courteous manner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One story goes that he had uh, Birgitta Helm, uh, who plays Maria, and the 500 children uh, who all came from like poorer districts of Berlin. They ha- he had them work for 14 days in a chilled pool of water mm-hmm. uh, and also demanded several retakes. Another was that he insisted on using real fire uh, in the scene where Maria is burnt right. for sake. <laughs> Uh, causing Helm stress to catch fire. Uh-huh. But just interesting to read these behind-the-scenes stories and how they uh, inadvertently kind of comment on the film itself. Sure. I mean, uh, if you if you wanted to take a, a slightly different psychoanalytic take than the than the Oedipal one, you would have the um, the tripartite psyche one. You know, id, ego, and superego. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of superego in the film, which is kind of the the controlling parental you know, fascist element in, mm-hmm. in all of us, um, which is, you know, what John uh, Frederson represents. Although, you know, he, he's kind of, he's kind of a soft fascist as far as they go, but, but by what you can tell, um, well, I guess not entirely, but <laughs> <laughs> um, he seems to be amenable to some kind of impact anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can perhaps see a relationship uh, if you want to take a kind of psychological biographical reading of um, the need to take, control um in a controlled society and the you know the, the more identified you are with the your super egoic capacity uh the less identified you're going to be with the uh the subjectivity of others and mm-hmm. see them more as objects for your own end you know that their narcissism lies as well obviously mm-hmm. um so you know that there there might be be something to that and then i think it, it, you can even take it further to a a more um social sociocultural level um where superego wants to control what can't be controlled too. So the imposition of technology to manage everything um, is kind of a, a superegoic dream of omnipotence. Mm. Um, yet that dream will always produce a shadow, which is what's going on underground, what drives, you know, what drives the machines. And the dependence on the machine, therefore, obviously, also has the shadow of uh, what you're depending upon to make everything work. Mm. So with total control, you're always twinned with total chaos, which is which is also sort of what it's about. And I'm sure, again, you know, coming out of World War One, that's what things would look like: uh, total chaos or or total control, which followed very shortly after the war. Mm. Um, and and on a personal level too. Yeah, he's certainly melding those two extremes and trying to make sense of it all. Uh, yes. in this film but I, I was also sitting here thinking that it kind of relates to ourselves in this day and age of how with all this technology that we have we are attempting to regain control in some ways um, trying to stay up to date that is basically a sign of being successful is being knowledgeable mm-hmm. and technology is used to gain so much information that you are basically overshadowing that those more basic needs that you have. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think um, a technology uh, gives us the, the illusion of control a lot mm. of the time. And you see this particularly in relation to um, the illusion of relational control. Yeah. So managing relationships on Facebook or on Twitter or, or getting a, a kick um, by how many followers you have or how many likes you have when, when actually the, the basic relational need that underlies that can feel very much out of control, um, can feel very vulnerable and mm -hmm. uh, finds that uh, finding relational kicks uh, through technology doesn't quite do the job that uh, that you need. No. Yeah, I think uh, Sherry Turkle, who's a, a, another uh, psychologist who does a lot of theorizing around technology, she says, uh, we may create the technology that we want, but not the technology that we need. Mm. <laughs> I think there's a lot to that. Yeah, I don't think I have uh so much else to say do you have anything that we haven't covered that we would like to discuss well uh I th you've, you've given me a pretty good opportunity to to reflect on lots of different angles on the film and i think there would probably be more if i hadn't just watched it yesterday so <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit more needs to uh to gestate for me um uh, but i think we've i think we've covered a, a lot and um I'm also grateful for the opportunity. You know, like you said, you were surprised I hadn't seen it. And I was a little surprised and ashamed to share that with you before <laughs> we started. But um, I'm really pleased to have had the opportunity to do so and to think mm. about it with you. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, I am in my fourth year in psychology now, and I'm really getting into that psychoanalytic theory now and kind of finding out where my interest lies. And it's been such a joy to like discuss two of my like main interests as i said earlier with film and psychology and especially psychoanalysis oh great it's not many people that share my interests yeah. no no and i i hope uh coming out of this um you might be another another advocate like myself for the the validity and interest in um using contemporary psychoanalytic concepts to understand not just film and television but but modern culture in in general mm -hmm. yeah uh, i think so yeah Okay, so you haven't posted anything on your blog for almost a year. Um, do you no, have anything it hasn't like been that long? Has it? No, uh, I think it was November twenty fourteen. I think. Oh, on the oh, on the movie part of the blog. On the movie part, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I've, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. I've been involved in some research in relation to technology, uh, like uh, doing technology over things like Skype. Or, sorry, doing psychology over things like Skype, and that's okay. kind of um, taken the foreground for a moment. Um, but there are two films out at the moment. Like I really, I really want to see Spectre and I really want to see Steve Jobs. And I was hoping to do a blog post about maybe one or both of those when I can get out to see them. Excellent. Yeah. I also saw that documentary, Professor Green, Suicide in Me. Oh, yeah. Uh, where you participated in the end there. And that was uh, a really strong documentary for me. Uh, quite impressionable. Uh and really um, a brave documentary looking at something that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. I, I thanks, thanks for saying that. I mean, I think this is another area where psychologically minded, <clears throat> excuse me, psychologically minded producers um, can utilize media in a way that's really powerful and positive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think they can do that with technology and social media too. And um, anytime I see some psychologically responsible media uh i i just i i really i really want that to be present in impacting culture as much as all of the the dross and crap we have out there that i think mm. um models not so good ways of being in the world mm. 
So Aaron, tell our listeners where they can uh, get in touch with you online. Okay. Um, well, you can check out uh, my website, um, mindswork.co.uk. Um, check out the blog, uh, which you've reminded me, I, I do need to update uh, some of those <laughs> film and television reviews soon. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter in my uh, Twitter handle is at D-R-A-R-O-N-B, D-R-A-A-R-O-N-B. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me, Aaron. Well, thanks very much. On this episode, you weren't able to join us, Tom, but I know you're a big fan of Metropolis, and I thought we could do like an addendum to the episode I did with Aaron and talk about the Marauder version. Certainly, yeah. I seem to remember, and I told you this uh, yesterday or something, that yes. uh, you prof- professed your kind of love for this film when it was... Uh, we talked about this one, I think, uh, when it was announced. Uh, yeah. some, of, some of our year wrap-up episodes, I think. Yeah, I seem to recall uh, being quite excited for this for that this was actually coming out, and I, I remember being just pleased it was going to be out there on Blu-ray um, mm-hmm. f- for our enjoyment. And oddly enough, I hadn't watched it for many, many years. And in kind of preparation for this, obviously, I went back and watched this Maroda version, and I was kind of gobsmacked as to <laughs> how on earth I had ever reached that conclusion. And I don't know whether or not I have not been well lately. I've not been in the best of moods. Um, I won't say man flu, but I've had some sort of affliction which has gone from my lungs and is now residing in my teeth. And uh, yeah, I've been thoroughly miserable actually the past few weeks. And and, and watching this film, I was like, oh my God, how on earth did I ever think this was any good? Hmm. And it it kind of made me... I thought, no, come on, let's see. it can't be as bad as you think it is. It, this, this isn't fun, you know, what's going on here? And I think I kind of, I realised what I think my, my sort of Metropolis error was. The last time I saw this film, Metropolis hadn't been rediscovered again. It yeah. was still one of these kind of lost films. And you, I'd only ever seen really kind of bodged together, cobbled together ones. Um, for any people in England, you might remember a magazine called Neon. It was a film magazine that was, it kind of died a death. It was, I think it went between about 96 and 90, definitely 99. I remember still buying it when I was in my first year at university. And um, Neon was kind of like the bastard son of empire, really. It was a bit more edgy. And I remember it gave away a free copy of Metropolis um, hmm. video on VHS which even thinking about that's quite a feat to give away a VHS on the front <laughs> cover of a magazine. But I, I seem to remember watching that. And it was, again, it was one of these hack, hacked up jobs of Metropolis. And that was my kind, that was my copy of Metropolis for quite a long time. And the Marauder one came along. And I just remember, I quite like the, the music of George Marauder. I've seen him DJ quite a few times. And he's always quite good. Mm. You know, he's, he's good, good, good value. I mean, he, you know, he kind of, you know, he's an incredibly influential guy. And I, I think I probably... I'm not trying to dig myself out of some hole here or justify things, but I think what I, the younger me liked about it was mm. was that it was the fact that he'd obviously... Metropolis was in its kind of butchered state, and he's kind of come back to give it a modern spin, mm-hmm. albeit with some truly terrible music. Um, a, a, you know, an hour and a half simply doesn't do justice for this film. And I suppose it's kind of what grounds you're going on and watching it. And I... I probably went on it thinking, ah, oh, this would just be a nice like remix. I'm, I'm, I like remixes and remakes and people who come in at things and have, kind of give their own go. And you think you see it a lot of time with um, silent films. Um, you know, modern artists come back and give their spin on it you know, with the soundtracks and stuff like that. And I really enjoy those types of, 
of endeavors and i think perhaps i was just a bit more forgiving when i watched it mm-hmm. um but going back to it and the, the past few days i was like god this is absolutely turgid <laughs> I was actually embarrassed watching it at some stage. I, I, I normally have I have very particular settings when I watch a film. The sound has to be on my amplifier turned up to 40, which is just the right level to be quite loud. And you, you obviously got to get the, kind of the nuances in sound. I, I, I turned it down to about 15, so I thought, I don't want my neighbours hearing this. <laughs> what on earth are they going to think of me? I mean, I... I had images of them thinking I was kind of pole dancing to myself or something like that. And it, the, yeah, it, it was a terrible experience going back to it. And it, I, I, I'm a little bit gobsmacked, actually. Yeah, um, I think it's worth like going over the history of uh, Metropolis because yeah. this is really the release we have now. Um, it's really the first kind of complete release that we've ever been given. Uh the Marauder version and the uh, version that we have, uh, which is the main feature on the Metropolis disc, is kind of um, an expanded, complete version. Um, and Metropolis, it has been trimmed and rearranged ever since I think it saw its reception in 1927. Uh, it had a kind of a lukewarm reception in Berlin in January that year. And it was handled by a playwright in Paramount, Channing Pollock. He cut it down from the original 153 minutes to about uh, 110, I think it was, for the US debut uh, in March that year. Uh, because audiences, they were more used to like features that were around like 90 minutes. And then I think perhaps inspired by Paramount, uh, Ufa, the, um, the film uh, distribution company in Germany they were perhaps hoping for some sort of greater commercial success than the original cut had promised after its disastrous premiere so few uh, ever really got to experience that real uh, lengthy film that Lang had attended uh, and footage kind of disappeared and were lost in vaults and some, some were destroyed by Nazis I think so this 1984 Marauder version it really was the first attempt to kind of create something that resembled a complete version and i think that's really where its strength lies that you have it it really clarifies some significant plot holes and restores some missing scenes and it was kind of one of the best ways the film had looked in years so i think it's important to like acknowledge that aspect of it as you were saying more than really how the film works on its own yeah i mean a for effort yeah, I mean that's, that, that's all you can say. I mean, you know, it's, it's this isn't this isn't vandalism. This is you know, everyone's hearts in the right place. Mm-hmm. That's not you know that's that's not kind of f- forget that. And it's obviously someone who loves the the material and has tried to do their very best. But unfortunately, I, I think it's kind of a reflection of really how far Metropolis was so ahead of its time when it came out. It wasn't made for to put it in the cinema for an hour and a half two hours you know this was an epic science fiction mm. and that unfortunately kind of fell at a time when the world was changing quite considerably and it, it sort of fell by the wayside I'm, I'm just so thankful i mean i i, I distinctly remember when the the, the 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 additional scenes were found um it seems like eternity now was it like 2007 2008 or something like 2008 that? yeah yeah it was it was one of those kind of moments, I think, that cinephiles had been praying for. Mm-hmm. There's, 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 a, there's a few, isn't there? There's like kind of the Magnificent Ambersons 
there's this rumor that there was a one that, that there was a, there's a full cut of it that went to South America where Orson Welles was so he could work on it and it was never seen again and there's this, just this hope that it sat somewhere in a vault in Uruguay or somewhere like that and it in a way it's kind of less depressing if you kind of believe that 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 to be true and I think yeah. Metropolis <laughs> it was one of those where there was this kind of ta- you get these tantalizing glimpses through kind of film history mm-hmm. of what could have been and then obviously when it was found that was something i mean i wasn't i i i probably hadn't seen it enough times to i know it was a flawed film in many respects not through any fault of fritz lang just because of obviously the amount of footage that was missing and kind of like the way things suddenly happen and disappear and stuff like that and it, i think for me personally i always found it slightly hard to really love metropolis until that reconstructed version came out hmm. and this is why I can, i'm going to segue back into why i slightly think that my marauder love came from the fact that I was like, well, you know what, this is... It, it you could see the potential there. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that was probably why. And I, I was pretty, at the time, succumbed to the fact that I was never going to see it how it was intended. Mm-hmm. And mercifully, you know, we have that now. Yeah, and it definitely. kind of makes what's gone before ever so slightly redundant. Yeah, but absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. If someone told me, like, looked me in the eye and said, oh, no, that Marauder one is a five out of five brilliant film, I sort of... Like, <laughs> Do you know what? Shut up! <laughs> you, don't, you don't mean that. It's, it, it seems like kind of it seems made to be one of those smart asses who would be at the trendy bar. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of Still a bar listening like, to yeah, like, music. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, you know, the on tape cassette or something. You know yeah. that guy would be twiddly beard and drinking craft lager. I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably grossly exaggerating, but you, you know, you know the type. And you yeah, turn yeah. around and smugly inform you how no 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 that this this the Marauder one's the one and you just be like oh, shut up no it isn't and th- let's go back to it now and you, let's put it in perspective it had its time and its place and I think that time and the place now has been slightly slightly redundant yeah if I was going to say to anyone you know, buy Metropolis just go and buy that full completed one and love it for what it is I think that's the that's that that'd be my moral of this sorry tale of my mm-hmm. apparent love <laughs> for the Marauder one I think. Um... It's interesting watching this film with this very distinctual and very um, specific 80s music. Yes. And how it feels so anachronistic to kind of Lang's own era. And how that that's the real aspect that doesn't work for me, where the music is so incredibly cheesy. And the film itself is cheesy, so you kind of need that subtlety in the music when you have yeah. cheese on top of cheese it doesn't yeah yeah there's a lot of cheese there i mean this is one of the things i mean i remember when i'm I, I, buying silent films on dvds some of the soundtracks on silent films on dvds and blu-ray are absolutely hideous mm. to the point and i'm looking at what's intolerance i think i had the kino version of intolerance an intolerable film with an intolerable soundtrack it, had. it was terrible i seem to remember putting I think I can't remember what DJ I put on in the end. I think it was James Lavelle live in Barcelona, which ironically kind of, I don't know if I was in such a daze of boredom that I somehow made his beats match the music, but I've done it a few times. Where I've had to put other soundtracks on or listen to something else or just turn them off because they get so annoying. Mm. And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to replicate the kind of organy music you would have heard in you know, times because obviously not all cinemas could have afforded an orchestra to play along. But some of them are absolutely appalling. And when I was watching this Marauder one, I was like, I don't have any fondness for the 80s. I'm not one of these types. I think most of what came out of the 80s, especially music, was pretty god-awful. 
there there are some gems in there, but even my beloved Bruce Springsteen, Tunnel of Love is a terrible. <laughs> it sounds appalling, and it's because of the eighties. Born in the USA, just about gets away with it. But no, most of what came out in the eighties, I, I, I don't have this kind of nostalgia for it at all. Hmm. I don't. I, I seem to remember the eighties being a time where all I seem to be caring about was Star Wars and the threat of nuclear war. Because I accidentally watched Threads one night, and <laughs> I, I don't really. Yeah, I don't have this nostalgia for it. I mean, I was watching it for it. I wasn't sat there tapping my toes. I was like sat there thinking, oh, God, shut up. Yeah. You know, this is just, it's just irritating in the end. And the, the fact it's tinted as well. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I can't stand. It's yeah. like, I mean, why? <laughs> yeah. Why do they do that? It was someone, I mean, I, um, where was I the other day? God, I was in Fop in town, actually. The best, and if you live in Manchester, go to Fop right now, because the Master Cinema section's massive and they're all really reasonably priced. But um, someone picked up the coloured version of It's a Wonderful Life. And I was like, put that, I want to say, put that down right now. That is, <laughs> that is film vandalism. And if I had been, the, the guy looked quite mean, so I didn't really want to come to, to, to wade in there. But it, it's, it's that kind of thing. You know, why? why? Why were they doing this? Who's the audience yeah. in these days? Where's the protection for these films? And uh, yeah, who 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 are the gatekeepers allowing this to happen? <laughs> you know, and, and why does it happen? And we you know, we need some. It was a it was a stark reminder, really, that we we need to have more protection for film from this type of vandalism. And so the Moroder version, obviously, now we've got this kind. Yeah, we can we can stick it on the shelf with the other versions next to the completed, full constructed one which is the one that we should watch. But yeah, it, it, all these debates were going on in, on in my head. And I just wonder if, you know, this was Marode's like passion project, you know, his entire life. I'm going to, I'm going to bring Metropolis to the masses. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it kind of failed. Totally. <laughs> There's a distinction between bringing different music to a film even though it's modern and bringing something like a disco remix which is what yeah. he did uh, yeah. there, there are different degrees in which he can present uh, something new to metropolis and it just didn't just didn't come together really uh, no. it was an mtv version of metropolis that well, I mean, it's doesn't really should, I mean, it's interesting you should, you should say mtv because that's exactly where i think the inspirations come from yeah totally you know it's that kind of let's 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 update this for the modern world and what i mean the editing in the film is ridiculous yeah it's like you're on speed or something like that and i've just i've sort of sat there my head was kind of like it was like a sensory overload it was like the scene out of a clockwork orange where he's having his brain washed i was just like what on earth am i watching yeah and um yeah i mean it's exactly that's exactly it it's it's taking a film that really no one can honestly at that time no one would have been able to say oh well this is the complete version you've got these kind of bastardized versions flowing around so yeah, why not? You know, let, let's see what kind of people make of it. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, when when his friends saw this, were they like, "Oh, that's great, Georgia, <laughs> you've nailed it, well done." I mean, you know, people film, I don't know, like connoisseurs, like you know, Martin Scorsese, people like that they must have seen it, surely. But what I did think, these people have to say for it? I would imagine that they would be so pleased that he actually spent or he instigated kind of this three-year restoration of this. Like mm. seminal film so obviously you, you you need to 
have some respect for that. Uh, and even though uh, I think they they were in the same same mindset as you were when you first saw it, that Jesus, this is the first complete version we've seen of this, and there's so much potential here, and uh, I can't believe I'm seeing this sort yeah. of complete version of this. I would imagine, yeah, yeah. It's like I said, it's it's a for effort, but yeah. You know, with with, the, with hindsight, we can be a little bit harsh on the execution. Yeah, of course. I mean, I was sat there thinking, like, you know, what would I have done? This is mm-hmm. this is a question I often, and it's very easy, isn't it, to sit there and watch something and trash it and say, oh, you know, that, that's crap and that's awful. But ask yourself, you know, what would you have done better? You yeah. know, if if someone said to you, like in in the eighties, you know, go and you know, here's here's a, here's a ton of money go and redo Metropolis. We've got to sort of think to yourself, well, I'm going to have to do something which is going to be, have some kind of popularist slant on it. Yeah. Now you could suddenly, you could do, you could be all bloody, I don't know, try, try, try and do it with Marauder, or you could say, so I said that, and I thought, what would I do? Would I get someone like Van Gelis in, or Tangerine Dream, or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, get artists of that ilk of that electronic I don't think there's anything wrong with using electronic music over something like Metropolis I think it's made for electronic music you know, yeah the the imagery I mean a lot of that holds true of something like Blade Runner you can't not associate it with that score and I was thinking well you know I would have I would have brought in people like Tangerine Dream Vangelis pioneers of that kind of thing and try to have given it some sort of modern edge like that but mm-hmm. I question, I question the tinting thing. Yeah. Perhaps even of cut. I know it sounds all. I know I've said about colorizing. It's wonderful, but if you're going to do it, why pointlessly just have different kind of things? Colorize it. See what it looks like. You know, do a couple of frames. See how it looks. Does, mm. it, does it do end? Does it add anything to the film? Probably not. But <laughs> if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do some this color tinting thing, it's meaningless to me. I don't understand what that is. No. I mean, a colorized version of Metropolis with Vangelis music. On paper, that doesn't sound too bad. So now the film story in me says, "No, it sounds terrible." You've just said colorize it. You've just slagged off someone for attempting to buy it. It's a wonderful life in color. But if you're going to do something different, you know, just because I mean, you know, when you colorize like Casablanca, The Longest Day, and films like that's totally mental thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that at all. You might as well just put out the original. It doesn't. You're not changing anything. <laughs> but if you haven't, you know. If you've got a blank slate to do something crazy with, have a go. You know, see what it looks like. You know, yeah. This tinting nonsense, black and white or nothing. You know, I don't get it. Yeah. Well, what we have now um, is about. I think they found about uh, twenty-five minutes down in Argentina in two thousand and eight, but we're still missing like eight minutes or so. Uh, most notably, yeah. like that crucial scene with uh, Fredersen and Rotwang at the end there when they are duking it out. Yeah, uh, hopefully someone will find it in a cupboard or something. Yeah, it, it, again, it's it's nice to think it's out there, yeah. waiting to be discovered. <laughs> I mean, it's, I always kind of, I wish there was like a day where the, where the world's film archivists or a week just get and just go through everything, because there must be reels sat there. Yeah buried in various places i know in in norway uh this uh spring i think they found like a missing disney short that has been lost since the 30s or something so yeah uh, yeah have a look through and see what's on those reels you know and it, it must be there somewhere mm-hmm. you know I, I can't believe it isn't and it's like i said it's nice knowing i've never watched the magnificent ambersons on the basis that i don't it, it, i think it depressed me too much knowing that that what might be mm. i don't know if that's a kind of 
daft reason not to watch it but i i, I quite enjoyed like um the one hour one one fifteen of it i think yeah. the final 15 kind of you notice that things are missing yeah and hopefully it'll be there like you say i mean those missing eight minutes will turn up in some some eight millimeter version in a mental asylum in mozambique <laughs> Yeah. that's been used as a coaster for the past 100 years you know it might happen and i, I would love it to happen yeah. but for the moment i'm 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 happy that this is the version that we've got definitely i can yeah i can live with it i can i mean metropolis is now one of my favorite films i've just bought an incredibly expensive reprint of one of the posters of metropolis you know mm. i have a i have a couple more metropolis posters up in my house it, it, it's iconic for me yeah. in so many ways it's a true it's an awe-inspiring film on so many levels and it's I rejoice at what we have i guess you know, perhaps don't I, i'm trying to try not to imagine about those eight minutes you that know, it doesn't ruin the film no. like before you know before I just, the film before we we had before wasn't ruined it was just knowingly incomplete you couldn't help but notice the fact it wasn't complete mm-hmm. and it was quite frustrating so yeah and on blu-ray as well i mean christ yeah i've had so many versions of metropolis in various formats that god awful vhs <laughs> something i taped off the telly i, I think that was on german telly once and they had, a, they had a version that they used to play on there that was slightly different to the other ones. So I've had enough versions of it, and now I'm perfectly happy with my Master Sim Steelbook. Yeah, I mean that Steelbook edition is something to be admired. Yeah. Oh God, I mean, I remember when I, I, mean, I remember when that those first that this new version was found in Argentina, like checking Amazon, religiously waiting for that pre-order to go up. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't seem to take that long as well, you know, hearing the prints had gone back to be um, restored. And then there was kind of like, I remember sort of a, a press release came out saying, oh, you know, some of it was in pretty bad shape. And it was like, oh my God, panic a time, you know, <laughs> is it going to be all right? And then it, it came out, I was like, holy shit, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, you can, you can tell uh, the new bits from the old uh, because the, the, the 16 millimeter prints, uh, they look noticeably uh, worth, uh, worse yeah. for wear there but still um i mean yeah uh, watching the marauder version earlier today it doesn't look as good as those uh, 16 millimeter even so no not at all uh and also the the special features of my uh, steelbook edition that we got earlier this year i mean you have two new documentaries uh, as well as the the documentary that was about an hour that was included in the previous 2010 release uh you also have a full-length audio commentary with uh, Callot and Rosenbaum from the previous releases, which is so entertaining and so insightful, that one. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, it's, it's the version. Definitely, yeah. If that's it forever, if that's the version that we have forever, I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a Region B release, unfortunately, for you US listeners, but I think Kino has put yeah, out... Yeah, Kino they have, yeah. Don't know if that includes the Maroda version. It does. Um, it does. Yeah, out. yeah. You can. You can get it on the Kino version. Yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, so that kind of wraps up our Metropolis discussion. But uh, we've also had some not only special features that has been detailed on both Shane and um, Elaine May's New Leaf, uh, but we also have some new January releases that we can talk about as well. Definitely. Uh, so for Shane, uh, that will be. 
uh, a limited first run edition of 2000 copies with a two blu-ray set i have it already so you have it already yeah yes i have it i, I ordered it from um eureka and it arrived last week so brilliant very uh, happy with that i'm I, I i did get sent the screener and i was a get I, I was panicking that the screener wouldn't be the dub disc version. So I ordered it and I thought, you know what? I, I, they're so generous when they send out these screeners, you know, I, I thought, well, I'll buy one anyway, just in case so I've got it. Yeah. And then yeah, lo and behold it was. So what I'm going to, I think I said to you an email, what we'll do is I'm going to see how much they go up in value <laughs> over the next month. And if they don't go up that much in value, we'll give it away on, an, on, on my, well, the one I brought from, my, from Eureka. Yeah. We'll give that away possibly depending on how much it goes up. <laughs> That's how tight I am these days. Um, that's my justification for buying films sometimes you know yeah that's understandable um hopefully for you listeners uh, it will be a competition soon it's Uh, like my it's like my criterion third man blu-ray yeah (laughs) that will never leave this house because (laughs) i've just picked up the studio canal 4k version which is marginally better than the criterion but that criterion just goes for ridiculous money yeah and I was, someone, someone said without joking, "I oh, want you sell it," and I was like, "You for real? <laughs> You're going to be a hole in my in my collection." <laughs> the Shane edition, um, the second disc, which is exclusive to this first run one, it has the uh, original theatrical presentation of a one sixty six to one ratio, uh, and also an alternate one sixty six to one uh, framing. Uh, optimized for that one so and the rest of the of the special features are will also be on like a single disc blu-ray i would imagine yeah it's a great it's a great package i'm so happy with it It, it, it's absolutely brilliant and i love the fact that um this was one as well when it came out it came out i think it must have been warner brothers put it out i think in 2013 shane and i actually held off from getting it Mm. on the basis that i knew it was the aspect ratio Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't not the correct one, but not the kind of the the, the approved one, as it mm. were. And um, I'm just so glad that they did this. Yeah. Um, I, I love I love the fact that the distributors do this. Yeah, definitely. Because it's the type of thing that I mean. I mean, Touch the, of Evil when we talked about that one. Yeah. The, yeah. And I mean, I mean, if for anyone who's owned Apocalypse Now through the the, the history of home. I mean, the format ratios. It took us until Blu-ray to get that in the correct aspect ratio, mm. and it is a massive thing for me. I, it really bothers me when films aren't, or they're kind of cropped in, or you know, just people just do stupid things to them. I mean, yeah. William Freakin on the original DVD of um, Sorcerer reframed it mm-hmm. for one three one three three one. I think I think it was, and it's just like this fannying around with things that are very important just give us how it's meant to be seen or just do both for god's mm-hmm. sakes i can't believe it costs that much money to print off another blu-ray and stick it on the thing so yeah i'm just pleased that i'm going to be able to watch shane how it was intended to be seen how the director wanted it to be seen because after all that's i think it's important to respect and maintain their vision on home video home video releases absolutely and that uh, this the first disc on the Shane copy that will be the intended one thirty seven to one ratio. So everyone who is not being able to uh, get a hold of that uh, limited uh, first run edition, they will uh, still get the intended version. Uh, but it's interesting, always interesting to like compare to uh, how it was released and uh, alternate framing versions. So and also, yeah, no, no, yeah. I mean, a lot of how those films. I mean, the the, the way in which those films 
were made at the time. I mean, VistaVision. Yeah. The, the formats. These these were film formats that allowed for manipulation of mm-hmm. how they were shown. So it, it's the idea that what was correct and preferred and, and, and things like that is subjective to some people. Yeah, that's but true. I, I always think like how did how did when the director was filming it, how did he want it to look? Yeah. And it's like um I don't know if you picked up any Cinerama films on no. Blu ray. Um they do some some rather good things. I mean how the West was one you can watch it in kind of this flat version I suppose would be where they've just coupled together the three mm-hmm. panels as it were and that you can see the dividing line or they've done something called a smile box where they've kind of made the edges of the f- of the frame actually bigger so it kind of like concaves almost onto the screen yeah, to yeah. give you this kind of enveloping effect of how it may have looked on the big screen and I quite like that they do that and they, they, they give you both options so mm-hmm. it's up to you what you like and it's just a nice way I think of acknowledging how the original intention of this film was meant to be seen and as well, sort of saying, well, you know, we understand a lot of people on a smaller televisions, it's not really going to work. So they give you this kind of very widescreen version to kind of enjoy as well. And I, I, I really appreciate it when they do that. Yeah. Also included uh, on the Shane disc is the the audio commentary uh, with Josh Stevens Jr. and uh, associate producer Ivan Moffat. Um, there's also a video interview with the film scholar Neil Sinyard, as well as a, a radio theatre adaptation of Shane. So good stuff there definitely we have the quiet man that has a a video essay with uh, ted gallagher as well as the making of so looking forward to watching that when i get home yeah well i mean i've received i've received my screener of the of the quiet man as well and that's another re- that's another film that i really really love as well so we also have special features on uh, spine number 131 a new leaf where we'll get a Blue Beard of Happiness video essay by David Cairns, uh, which is, uh, I think that's the only feature that will be um, on the the disc, as well as a booklet. So, Day of the Outlaw. I know you can purchase, I think it was A New Leaf and Day of the Outlaw and save £3 if you order them uh, until the end of this week, I think it is. Uh, And we'll probably release uh, this episode on friday or saturday so you'll have a couple of days until that offer goes out but um you can get a double-sided sleeve which is actually i think that's the first time we've seen that on the massive cinema release yeah no definitely i think so yeah yeah not much else uh i think there's a there's sort of a video essay or video appreciation by bertrand tavernier uh, the filmmaker but it looks like a pretty slim disc so far over to the new January releases. We'll be getting on January the 25th, PDH's The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yes. Do you uh, have any like um, recollection of this film, watching this? Yeah, I've, I've, watched, I've, got, I've got the Criterion version. You have the Criterion, okay. Yeah. Yes, I've, 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 and I, I really love this film. Okay. Um, it's it's kind of the offence levels of misery. <laughs> it is not, it's not a cheery film. It is a really good film, though. I, I really do like... Uh, Robert Mitchum anyway mm-hmm. and in this he kind of he always Robert Mitchum I can never be sure if he can really looks like he can really be bothered in his films and I think it's just his mannerism and the kind of his acting style but um, yeah it's 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 a really good film Friends of Eddie Cole it's it's a very cold film mm-hmm. and it kind of reminds me of um, Killing Killing Them Softly that came out a few years that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. film it's that kind of 
plays in that kind of ballpark and that they'd make a quite a nice little double bill of kind of low level gangster hell really interesting but, uh, yeah definitely well worth getting coming in a dual format release that one um from the man who made bullet so there will be uh there were no special features announced so probably it will be announced closer to the release date but i love that kind of gloomy red um cover that they've uh, given the film so yeah yeah definitely love it um also on the uh 25th i think it is yeah a touch of sen which was it was hinted at from eureka's facebook page during can this year on may 1st and uh this film is coming to a i think it is a, a limited three disc edition where the the final disc will feature a documentary uh about king who himself um, as well as a new video essay by David Cairns and more, it says. So this is a film from uh, 1971. And King Hu, he also had this uh, other film uh, in Masters of Cinema that was released uh, recently, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Yeah, I've not seen that yet. Yeah. So that's on my... I'll be looking forward to this one, definitely. But it, it was quite a steep price I saw on Amazon, like 21 quids or something. Yeah, I mean, if you're paying for the extra. I mean, it, yeah. sometimes with Amazon... Um... I've noticed when they when f- films first go up there, they do the recommended retail mm-hmm. price thing first. I've noticed that they do it sometime on BBC Blu-rays, and then close to the time of release, it will come down. You get an email saying congratulations, the price has come down. I think it's just a bit of marketing thing, to be honest with you. Yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Winner of the uh, the Cannes uh, Film Festival uh, for a technical award there. Uh, a Wuxia film from the 70s, so uh, seems to be right up my alley. No, running at a running time of 200 minutes, so we'll make for a pleasant Sunday evening. <laughs> yeah, it's a Sunday afternoon job, that, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, but that was about it. Kind of a news wrap-up from the uh, last couple of months there. You are now feeling better at least, so hopefully you'll be back for our future episodes now. No, definitely, yeah. I my 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 schedule has slightly cleared at the moment. It's been an incredibly manic three months mm-hmm. of work, and um, gladly things have kind of began begin to have calmed down a little bit. So I will be able to kind of stick to more regular appearances. Brilliant. Okay, so uh, thank you for joining me for this kind of uh, extra feature for the Metropolis episode. No, it's been a pleasure. And uh, listeners, you can get in touch with us at moc underscore cast on Twitter. Um, send us an email, mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com or get in touch with us uh, through Facebook. So thank you so much for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.